This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. This is Aaron from Voice of San Diego. We are proud to partner with the San Diego Junior Lifeguard Foundation. The largest annual drowning prevention outreach event of the year is coming to San Diego on April 29th with April Pools Day, hosted by the City of San Diego and San Diego Junior Lifeguard Foundation. April Pools Day will be held on Saturday, April 29th from 12 noon until 3 p.m. at Memorial Park Pool in Logan Heights. The event is free of charge and the pool will be open with a variety of fun and interactive booths set up on the deck. To RSVP, go to eventbrite.com and search City of San Diego April Pools Day. My mom says my neighborhood school isn't good enough. How am I supposed to know my kids are getting the best education possible? Welcome to Good Schools for All, a podcast from the investigative news organization Voice of San Diego. We cut through the jargon and polarized debate to get you the news and ideas that matter. Good schools are at the heart of our democracy and economy, and we're about good schools for all kids. We hope you'll learn and maybe teach us something. Enjoy the show. It should be an excellent school in every community. All right, I'm Scott Lewis. I'm Laura Cohn. Hi, Laura. Hi, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'm post spring break. So yeah. I'm still uh still on the high of having been out in the desert and seeing all those flowers. Are right, you did? Where'd you go? Went to Joshua Tree, okay. scrambled and climbed the rocks, and um the cactuses were sending up these gorgeous, deeply hued blooms. It was pretty amazing. So I talked about this on the other podcast, but we also went to the desert and camped. Oh. We were at Palm Canyon at Borrego Springs and did you know there's frogs? No. In the desert? Not in, oh, no, I didn't it was know that. It's crazy. There was like this little hike to the, like this little oasis with this river or the little creek and these frogs. And at night you could hear them, you know, croaking, ribbiting. It was amazing. Oh, now, would we have those in a normal year or was it due to all yeah, the water? Yeah, said it's native. It's just that, yeah, there's obviously more life in the whole desert. There's more rats. There's more rodents. There's more rattlesnakes. Snakes. Yeah. There's more everything. Yeah. yeah. So the kids, uh, Love that Easter egg hunt in the in the desert. <laughs> we learned a lot about tadpoles. There were little tadpoles and such we could see. Nice. Um, so I, I had another experience. Uh, I talked about this as well on our other podcast, Voice San Diego podcast, but th- there's a different angle here. I was at the beach and I recognized somebody. There was, there was this family, obviously speaking Arabic, playing in the water. And I recognized one of them from my friend's or a, a Facebook post of an acquaintance um, as he had helped adopt a family from Syria. And I recognized the guy from the Facebook post. And I went up and talked to him. And we had this wonderful afternoon, the next few hours, like me trying to learn about them and them not trying to learn about us and talk and you know, share back and forth, even though he spoke no English and most of the family spoke no English. And mm. I spoke, I speak like a few words in Arabic. That's it. And, but the one kid, there was one kid, 14 or so, I don't remember, 14 or 15. And he was in El Cajon and he was in the schools there. And it reminded me of 
talking to David Miyashiro on this show, yeah. the superintendent of Cohen Valley Schools, and talking about all the refugees they get there. And this is one of this them. is this one of their is, families, and, yeah. And he was talking, and he was, you know, he's just like two months in of like never learning English before, and and he's he's the translator, like he's pulling it together. And I was <laughs> I was thinking to myself, wow. my goodness, like this kid is what a. Sh- I, I asked him at one point, I'm like, is this just weird? Is it weird? And he just he had this like far off stare, and he's he said, yeah. I mean, he was. He he was, and he he didn't have a very good vocabulary, obviously not. But I was I was really impressed at just a couple months of just sink or swim English, and here he is, you know, pulling it together. But it really highlighted what we've been talking about—the challenge that some of these school districts have, and these kids have when they come in and they need to learn a language in order to thrive here. Now that's that's Arabic, and as I think you were just making a point to me off uh, offline there, that. It's not um, the bilingual option that we talk about a lot is great. Bilingual dual language immersion. Dual language immersion schools are great, but not necessarily for that situation because the dual language is going to be probably English and Spanish or probably maybe French, maybe Chinese or something, but not every language is going to be able to have its own school. Right. We probably wouldn't want to... um create that entirely most of the or many schools I, I don't mean most but many schools in San Diego County do have a melting pot and in, in, including out in um, El Cajon and Cajon Valley they have uh, Mexican and South American immigrants and they have these immigrants from the Middle East the immigrants from the Middle East don't all speak the same they don't all speak Arabics and mm-hmm. um, yeah so in that situation Dual language immersion or bilingual education is not going to be the the answer. It's going to have to be some version of English language immersion. So not too long ago, the National Academy of Sciences came out, science came out with a consensus report on the best that we know, the best judgment and what research tells us about how to educate English learners, right? They did, and it was chaired by um, one of my longtime professional mentors and friends, Ruby Takanishi, so she's coming in to talk to us about it. Um, And I just was really excited that the National Academies commissioned this consensus report because it's it's clear to me as as a visitor to schools and someone who talks to principals and teachers around our region all the time that we are there's too much making it up as we go along in how we approach educating um, kids who don't speak English when they come to us, whether it's at kindergarten, at pre-kindergarten, or somewhere in the middle of their education career. And we need academia to continuously, not just once. It's great that they took sort of a, a dipstick right now to say, to say what's the state of the science, but we need them to be continuously in dialogue and um, feedback loops with the active educators because we've got Kids well, and, coming in all the in time. California, we're remarkably behind and the cutting edge of what we can do for people who are learning English and yeah. dual language programs. We are that two. I mean, two two seven, which um, outlawed bilingual education, really set us back because it took off the table an approach to educating um, English learners that wasn't optimized when 227 passed but it needed to keep iterating and getting better and we couldn't any longer so um the passage of prop 58 last november is opening up 
a new channel of exploration and experimentation in um, how we work with um, dual language kids or English learner kids that is gonna it's gonna be fruitful. So hopefully we'll we'll do some catching up with where um, where other states are. But I don't mean I don't want to imply that other states have it optimized or figured out. But we are we're stunted in our growth. Yeah. Well, you have a number of the week for us. I do. The number of the week is one in seven. And actually, for me, this is a good news number. Um, there's something that... Um, As in good news, not just a good news like fact. Correct. It's actually good, good news. news. As opposed to bad news. Like the good news Bible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just like that. Uh, so there's something we worry about among our English learners, which is called, which is the phenomenon of long-term English learners. There are... Uh, um, surprising number in general of kids who come to us in kindergarten and we find out that they're English learners and then six or seven or eight or nine years later even though we've had them in our grasp in our embrace ever since they started school they're still not speaking English fluently um and and you know your so just to give some context what happens is if you're an English language learner, the goal is to get you out of that classification, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you look at... Well, the goal is to have you master English, just to be a little right. more specific. Yeah. And 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 we test kids um, using tests. We're actually... California's about to switch tests, but we test them on um, an assessment. And um, yeah, our goal is for them to, sh- to demonstrate to us that they've mastered the English language enough that we don't need to give them special extra support anymore. And so it's important to remember when you look at stats about English language learners and how far behind they are from other groups of kids, you have to remember that the ones who succeed move out of that classification. So it's not, it's not a, a set group of people. It's not like a a race classification or something it's they it's fluid yeah and so what we're talking about here is there's a group at what one in three that enter the schools and then you're saying that it goes down to one in seven who stay that group stay as as english learners exactly so yeah i was worried honestly that it was gonna be worse so how did you figure it out i i actually had to do a manual calculation the state is um so it's great that we are even able to have a statistics or numerical conversation about English long-term English learners in California. It, um, the legislature only passed the last three or four years ago that required districts to report to them about the um, long-term English learners, and um, which is defined in this case as children who retain that designation of English learner for six years or longer. So it's only, so therefore it only pertains to kids in sixth grade or higher. Um, but uh, I was worried. I was yeah. worried that it was going to be more kids who were who were struggling to um, to master English. One in seven is still a lot of kids for San Diego County. That's over five thousand kids um, in sixth grade who have been English learners since kindergarten. So that's it's um, not a good story for those five thousand plus kids. But still, um, we're doing okay with with getting kids to master English here. And you have a what's working. Yeah, this is an exciting one to share because um, it's uh, highlighted in the national consensus report. So they did profiles of examples of effective English learner education across the nation. And one of the ones that they did a big case study on is the Chula Vista Learning Community 
Charter School, um, which is down in Chula Vista, obviously. It's a dual immersion school, um, English, Spanish, but also Mandarin. Really? Yeah. So a tri- triple tri- immersion. A, a tri- trilingual immersion school. I know we have at least one other one of those out in Lakeside um, in San Diego County. Really? In fact, Randy Ward had his children uh, enrolled there really? and was very proud of their um, Mandarin um, mastery, which was, it was pretty impressive. So um, yeah, Chula Vista Learning Community Charter School is is this national model. And not only because of the results that they get for kids there, but also they, um, they have a really sophisticated approach to instruction with kids doing... Um, problem solving and and project-based learning um that uh that is really I- impressive to the researchers who profiled them so encourage i um I'll applaud them and also encourage people to look up the the case study well kinsey if you're listening as well kinsey on our staff that might be in- of interest to her she's on the hunt for a, <laughs> a great dual dual language immersion school all right so tell me why did we want ruby on um so Ruby was the chair of this consensus committee, oh, right. and so she um, she'll, she's able to share with us um, so the findings and, and the insights that the that the committee came up with. And she wasn't Ruby knew a lot about lots of things before she chaired this com- consensus committee. But her overall specialty for the last uh, 15, 20 years has been mainly around um, early childhood, which is there's a big overlap between. Um, English learner education and early childhood education, but she was she was learning along the way, and so the insights that she gleaned and that the committee gleaned, um, she had she was acquiring them alongside the committee. Well, here's our conversation with her. Okay, we are joined in the Great Voice of San Diego podcast studio in downtown San Diego by Ruby. Takanishi. She is a senior fellow, senior research fellow at New America, and she's visiting San Diego from New York. Thank you so much for stopping in. Thank you. Okay, so do you want to tell her about what we're doing? Yes, so um, Ruby has recently completed work with 19 distinguished scholars from around the nation on behalf of the National Academies of Sciences, um, looking at what is the state of the science on the education of English learners and Ruby, um, we thought a good way of helping our listeners to um, understand some of the some of the most important findings of your report would be to give you a quiz, a true false quiz. Are you are you game for that? Sure. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, because there are a lot of uh, ideas and conceptions and misconceptions that people have about how we learn language, how we learn second languages. Um, and so, and your report helps to to dispel many of those misconceptions and to explain things that I think people will find interesting. Scott, do you want to lay out the first one? Okay. Ruby's my daughter's name, by the way, so I already really like you. We're, <laughs> we're already here. All right. So, true or false, for children who come to our schools who don't speak any English, if we just immerse them in English language classrooms... It takes them about a year to become fluent. False. Why is that false? Well, I think we can look at test scores. We can look at the National Assessment of Education Progress. And it is very clear that DLLs in all states uh, throughout the country are really at the bottom of the charts. They have the widest achievement disparities among different groups, including 
racial ethnic groups and economic groups. Okay. Well, so does it take a year to learn English if you're a non-native English speaker? Well, <clears throat> I think that it may be possible depending on how young you are and what opportunities you have to be able to speak what I would call colloquial, conversational, social um, English. However, we are also talking about children who uh, are required, like all children, to learn academic subjects. And that requires a different kind of English, uh, which some people call academic English. And uh, that does take a much longer time. About how long? What 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 did your group? Well, find? the research evidence is that it is about five to seven years, um, but that's under. We really emphasize that that time span is under current conditions oh. of instruction, and current conditions of instruction are clearly not optimal. Hmm. So it could very well be a shorter time, depending on what kinds of instruction and pedagogy children are exposed to. But it's very, very clear that uh, for most children who come to our schools not knowing very much English, um, their experience uh, um, into the middle and high schools indicates that they're not, certainly not learning academic English. Okay. So, and they, they tend to be that we hear from um, educators that and um, I hear when I'm out in schools that they can appear very fluent out on the playground or even in the classroom in, in conversations with teachers. But when when the content gets really more complex, as it does pretty early, um, even in kindergarten or first grade, the, their, the depth of their understanding of English or, or their lack of deep understanding of English, this academic English, shows itself. Yes, I think that's, uh, that's very true. And I think we could um, think about our own experiences. I mean, some of us are conversational in our native language um, or languages, but we definitely could not have what I would call a academic or intellectual conversation in those languages. And I think that's a really good kind of analogy of what children in these schools face. Yes, I mean, they're able to talk to their classmates, um, you know, in, in, in just everyday social interactions. But to be able to talk about science and, and technology and uh, social studies and um, interpretation of text, mathematics, is they are languages, I would say, English languages that are associated with those subject matters. And that's what we mean by talking about academic English. So, Ruby, before we go on, I realize we didn't give you a chance to explain what is a consensus committee at the National Academy of Sciences and just briefly what was your process for producing this report that came out on February 28th? Well, this the National Academy of Sciences was established by President Lincoln. Um, it was an act of Congress. And um, the idea was that uh, scientists would volunteer to their time, that is, without any compensation, uh, for periods of time to advise the Congress, the president, and the executive agencies uh, based on science about important public and social policy issues. Uh, so in this particular case, um, the study was supported by the U.S. Department of Education and the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, as well as three 
private foundations uh, because I think everyone felt that the education of children and youth learning English was a, what shall I say, a problem of, of national proportions. And, and as we say, they have consequences for individual lives, but they also affect our society um, in terms of not only economic development, but civil society and social cohesion. So we, we really felt that this was a very important subject to try to address from the point or points of view of the different scientific disciplines. So the committee was unusually large, maybe twice the size of a usual consensus committee of the National Academies, um, because it really covered um, the learning of English from birth to age 21. Mm -hmm. um, and so we had people from, from very diverse perspectives, um, uh, language development, um, the preparation of educators, uh, children who had disabilities, um, people in early education, in primary, middle school, and high school uh, education. Uh, we had demographers because we wanted to know what this population was like. People who are interested in social policies with respect to the education of English learners. So as you can tell, the committees are constituted to have different disciplines and different points of view, and we are required to come to consensus. That is, people have to sign, <laughs> sign their names that they agree. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think I would say it's pretty clear in this area of um, how should, quote, English learners be educated is a highly, highly contentious issue. And I think that it was, as a result, um, coming to consensus was not an easy thing. So as the chair, you were the chief cat herder, <laughs> <laughs> consensus builder, huh? Exactly. Well, good job. You got to a consensus. All right. You ready for another question? Sure. Okay. Um, since it's so important for all Americans to speak, read, and write fluent English in order to um, fully participate in, in our economy, the best thing for parents from other countries who move here that they can do for their children is to just speak English to their kids as much as they can as much as they're able, as early as they're able? False. Why? <laughs> <laughs> and what's the truth? Well, I mean, as you can see, we, uh, we had this uh, very diverse committee, people coming from very different points of view. And um, I, I don't think there was any disagreement, um, and it's reflected in the recommendations or conclusions and recommendations of the report, um, uh, that the best thing that parents can do, and particularly in early educators and in early learning programs, is to use and speak the language in which they feel most competent um, and comfortable to children. Uh, and, and basically that idea is that, especially for young children, um, the, 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 the strong development of, let's say, the first or home language is a critical foundation uh, for the development of the second, second language, typically English. I would just like to say this because I think it's so important. Um, this, this conclusion is somewhat radical 
Um, So we were we made this conclusion in the context of knowing that a lot of professional practice, whether it's in the health professions, the education professions, and so forth, and even among parents themselves, um, is to speak English to their children and to only speak English. So this is a, I would say, certainly a controversial uh, conclusion. True or false, Ruby? Even after English language learners master English, they do as well, they do do as well as native English speakers on standardized tests. So after mastering English, they do as well as English speakers, native speakers. I think it really depends. (laughs) It's hard to say true. In general, I think that's true. Um, I would add the caveat that the few studies we have indicate that they do even better if they have experienced a dual immersion program. Mm. That is English, and in most cases, Spanish. Because their brain's stronger? Yes. That, that, that's, um, I, I think that's another part of our report that really talks about the benefits of, of being bilingual um, <clears throat> in terms of um, um, brain development, in terms of the neurosciences research. Uh, and we do make a very strong case for bilingualism as having uh, what we call cognitive social and emotional consequences. That is, the research, particularly on early bilingual development among young children, really indicates that um, there is no harm, which is very important because some people think it's harmful, uh, to grow up bilingual. And um, bilinguals tend to have better cognitive flexibility, um, attention control, memory, Um, and also, of course, the cultural and social benefits of bilingualism. And, of course, for older people, uh, certainly a delay in in dementia and other forms of cognitive loss later in life. So there are some really important benefits of bilingualism. And I I, I think I would say that, you know, I, I feel a bit silly and making these kinds of comments, even though it is really based on a research. Because really, when you think of outside the US, um, most countries and most people throughout the world are bilingual. And I think it really reflects our own conclusion that the capacity to be, be bi or m- multilingual, particularly in early childhood, is a universal capacity. Hmm. I want to do one. Okay, you're, go ahead. So math is not a language-based enterprise. It's its own language. Kids from other countries do great at math, even if they struggle in English and language arts. True or false? False. So why is it hard still to learn math, even if it's not, even if it is its own language that everyone has to learn? Well, part of it is that um, right now into the foreseeable future, um, we have changing expectations and um, standards, if you will, um, for mathematical learning. Uh, So we're not talking about simple, let's say, arithmetic or computation. 
uh, but more analytic reasoning, which requires language and uh, requires mathematical language as well as... Is that a fancy common. way of saying story problems? Well, that's really part of it, mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's really much more than that. I mean, for example, um, most mathematical problems um, can be solved in alternative ways, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and being able to talk about that and how you come to that conclusion, to be, to be able to explain it to the teacher or to your friends and so forth, requires a level of communication competence, but also mathematical language that is necessary. And this is what we're requiring for, for all of our students, including English learners. Uh, so mathematics learning, I would say, is, is very much connected uh, with what we would consider as English language development. Hmm. Okay, I have one. So California, since we've been, uh, we've had immigrant children for a long, long time. So we are really great at teaching English learners here in this state, aren't we? Nope. <laughs> Gosh darn it. False. Uh, false. And, and, you know, California has some really the large majority, the largest majority of English learners in the United States. Um, you know, I always like to say in states that have large numbers of English learners that it's really in your interest to do a better job in, in more effectively educating your English learners because that will actually reduce your achievement gaps. So give us some examples of states that are more sophisticated. You know, I, I'm, we do have pockets of sophisticated English learner education here in California, but give us a couple of examples of states who have done it better at scale. I don't think I can talk about states, um, but in our report, we do profile districts and schools. Uh, and at the scale of schools and districts of different sizes, who have um, measurable outcomes, measurable public outcomes uh, that show that uh, English learners uh, can achieve at the same level at the, as the rest of the state or even above the rest of the state. Um, so, and I think that the reason why that it's hard to answer that on the state level is because of local control in American education. Uh, so, Within a state, you would find a, a lot of variation in education effectiveness. I mean, that's just a basic fact. And so you would then find um, variations in, in effectiveness in terms of English learners as well. Um, there is a really interesting state example, uh, which is relatively new, so it's hard to uh, talk about what they are achieving at the state level, but the state of Utah um, actually has state legislation to support dual immersion language programs in all of their schools for children starting at kindergarten. And um, it's really too early to talk about how effective uh, this program is, but it's a very interesting state-level innovation. Talking about Scott's home state there. Yeah. All right. You ready? Or are you going to do the last one? You do the last one. All right. Learning two languages at once is fine, and kids can handle it. They can speak, read, write, do everything fine, and the data proves that it's, it's not confusing. 
Well, I think it really depends what you what age you're talking about. Um, if you remove the reading and writing part, um, the answer would be true. However, when you talk about reading and writing, this is something that occurs over a period of time. So um, they uh, uh, and and really is very highly dependent. I think on the kinds of educational experiences and 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 instruction uh, that children have. But the basic conclusion in our report is that um, the development of bilingualism um, is a universal human capacity. Um, all children have it, and uh, if given appropriate opportunities to develop that uh, bilingualism, and uh, it is beneficial, as I mentioned, and has no harm. I think this is something that... Um it seems like a duh, maybe it is, it'll be a duh for you, Scott. But um, so you have many in, in San Diego, we'll just take San Diego, you have many fluent Spanish speakers arriving at kindergarten and um, they arrive at schools generally that don't provide any support for that home language. So they um, are immersed in English and they become English literate over time. It, t- you know, it takes all of our kids time to become fully um, literate, like able to read and write in that language. And I think we forget that even though um, people who speak Spanish at home may have, they might be bilingual if they continue to speak Spanish frequently at home, but they won't be biliterate unless someone gives them instruction in reading and writing in that home language. Mario Coran and Adriana Eldi said in our shop did a great story about how it's actually quite hard for local recruiters to find bilingual, uh, you know, professionals who can do professional work in both languages. There's might be plenty of people who can speak both languages, but but be precisely because of what we've done to bilingual education, we have uh, hurt their chances, or we haven't they haven't developed into professionally biliterate. Uh, individuals who can maybe negotiate business deals or, or, you know, translate officially or do trade deals. Who knows? Yeah. And the reason is that reading and writing is something that one learns in an educational system or more simply put, they're part of academic subject learning. Uh, And so, and, and both reading and writing develop over time, become much more complex, much deeper in, in meaning and the kinds of interpretations that, that occur. And so it, it's, it's not the same thing as speaking. Um, and really when you think about learning a, you know, what people call a global world or foreign language, it's the very same thing. And um, uh, I, you know, I, think, I think we engage in a lot of wishful thinking um, and, and uh, sort of erroneous thinking um, uh, about English learners because when we think about ourselves and our own children and uh, their learning of the second or even the third languages, um, both the reading and the understanding and interpretation of content and the levels of writing and the f- sophistication of that writing uh, changes over time and is affected by good instruction. I would say it's the same, the very same process for the children that we call English learners. Are you, are you bilingual? <laughs> uh, I, I, well, I would say that um, standard English is not my first language. 
Um, and um, I, I'm glad you asked the question because I learned standard English when I went to school. And it's really been a lifelong process for, for me to um, both speak and write um, in standard English. Ruby Takanishi, I can't thank you enough for taking the time and your visit to San Diego. Thank you for coming in. Well, thank you. Thank you.